Thank you for listening to Bethlehem Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethlehem Baptist Church, please email us at info at BethlehemVA.org. That's info at BethlehemVA.org. All right. Well, when I came up just a minute ago and I said good morning, uh, it sounded more like we were in a funeral home than in the house of God this morning. So why don't we try that again? Good morning, church. There you go. You're getting a little better at this. We need to be excited to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. To be gathered together with the saints, to be studying the word of God, to be singing praise and worship to our God and Savior and King. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Colossians. I warned you that we would be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 again, and guess where we're at? Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So, read with me, if you will, um, as we begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. For this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you have given us. We do thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather together as a local assembly of the body of Christ. And God, we pray that as we have worshipped thus far through Sunday school, through Uh, the teaching of your word and the discussion of your word through our fellowship with one another, through our time of prayer, through our times of singing, Lord, that all of these things have been a sweet sound to your ears and a sweet smell to your nose, that they have been honoring and glorifying to you. And as we continue in our worship this morning through the preaching of your word, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts. Holy Spirit of God, illuminate the scriptures to us. Help us to see, help us to understand and perceive, and help us to apply the truths that we learn here to our lives. God, we love you so much. We praise you. We thank you for who you are and what you have done for us and continue to do in us. We pray that we would be faithfully obedient to you in all of our lives. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in a series entitled, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything in the book of Colossians. And we come now uh, again to verses 1 through 8 as we gave uh, in an introduction last week and kind of introduced the book and gave some background uh, on the book. And now we come to uh, these passages again to kind of go into some more detail regarding the text itself. So this is Paul gives thanks for the Colossian believers. Paul gives thanks for the Colossian believers. Paul is sitting in a Roman prison, as we talked about, and he hears this report from Epaphras, who comes to him on behalf of the church, and he hears this report about the church in Colossae. And we know uh, that there were concerns, hence we have the letter uh, to the Colossian church here. Uh, We talked last week about the threats that were facing this church, uh, the threat of what would be known eventually as Gnosticism, uh, but this idea that a greater knowledge, a greater understanding, a greater, a higher plane of understanding was needed uh, in addition to Christ, in addition to believing on and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You needed to reach this higher plane of understanding in order to have true salvation, to be a part of the spiritual elite. And this is why the title of our series is Christ Plus Nothing 
equals everything because it is not about a higher obtaining of knowledge. It is not about a higher plane of existence. It is about Christ and Christ alone. He is the Savior. He is our Lord. He is the only one who can save. As Peter said, he is the only name given among women under heaven by which we must be saved. So Paul writes to the Colossians to remind them of the centrality and the supremacy of Christ. As we move through uh, this uh, book, this little book of Colossians, we're going to see these themes being elevated by Paul, being, uh, being really uh, pushed by Paul. And he wants to help them understand how their position in Christ should change the way they think, the way they speak, the way they relate to others, the way that they see the world. But while there were concerns, uh, we also noted And we're going to see this week that Paul also wrote to them with a spirit of great gratitude for what was going on there. As Paul begins this letter to the Colossians, uh, he tells them of his gratitude to God for what has happened among them. And what is it that has happened among them? Well, it's the gospel has come to them. The gospel has come among them. They have heard it. They have understood it. And it has started, according to Paul, to bear fruit in their lives. And Paul is thankful to God that they are followers of Christ, that there are believers in Christ in Colossae, that this church is filled with those who belong to Jesus Christ, whose lives have been changed forever by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and who now bear the fruits of faith, repentance, love, and hope. Now this may seem like an odd time to have an invitation in a worship service, but I think every aspect of our worship should preach the gospel, should be centered around the gospel. And so let me ask you this morning, if you're in here this morning, and I want to just throw this out there right now, I want this to be the forefront of every aspect of our ministry here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're in this room right now, If you're hearing my voice right now and you have never understood that you are a sinner, that the scripture says that we're all on equal playing field, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 tells us. Everybody is a sinner. Everybody, there is no exception. All people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that the result of that, the wages, what we are due, what we are owed because of our sin nature, because of our sinfulness, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And that's not just speaking of physical death there, but that's speaking of eternal spiritual death in a literal place called hell where the Bible says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm dies not, where there will be eternal flame and yet eternal darkness. This is not a place where you get to go and party with your friends. This is a place of separation from God, a place of torment, a place of torture that lasts for eternity. The wages of sin, what you are owed because of your sin, is death. We live in a society today that likes to think I'm owed something. You, you should give me this or you should do this for me because I, I, I deserve that. No, ladies and gentlemen, the only thing that we deserve apart from Christ is eternity in hell. It is by the grace of God that we are alive and remain upon this earth. It is only by his mercy that we are here today. The wages of sin is death, but... That verse doesn't stop there, does it? Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, we couldn't pay our sin debt. We can't fix it. We can't remedy the problem that we have. We can't earn our way into heaven. It had to be paid for us. And that free gift came in the person of Jesus Christ who came upon this earth who lived a sinless life, who was God incarnate, who is God among us. And he went to a cross in our place. He took upon himself God's wrath on your sin and mine. And he died and he rose again from the grave three days later 
to give us victory over death, hell, and the grave. The Bible says that and tells us that for when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so if you're in here this morning and you've never understood that you are a sinner, that your sin separates you from God, that it <clears throat> literally damns you to hell, and that the only way to remedy that problem is by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, and you have never done that this morning, then I would say to you, what are you waiting for? Don't wait another moment. You can, in your seat, right at this moment even, cry out to God and tell him, God, I'm a sinner, and I know I'm a sinner, and I know I can't fix it on my own. I need you to forgive me. I need you to save me from my sin. And he will do it. He will save you. Don't hesitate. Don't wait on me. Don't wait on somebody else. You can do it this morning. You can cry out to God this morning in repentance and faith and receive Christ as your Savior. This is the very idea, this is the very theme that Paul was thanking God for on behalf of the Colossian believers. That this truth of the gospel had not only come to them, but it had taken root and was now bearing fruit. And he said, every time we pray for you, we thank God that the gospel has taken root and that it is produ producing fruit. So as we said last week, uh, Paul gives a greeting here. Uh, but it's a greeting with a purpose. Notice again verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now most of Paul's letters follow uh, very similar patterns in writing, and there's a reason for that. Paul is following the standard letter format of his day. And when we think about how we write a letter today, right, we usually identify uh, the, the person that we're writing to first, dear so-and-so. We give the body of the letter. You don't find out who it's from until you get to the end, unless you sneak a peek and look at the end, right? They sign, they sign their name from so-and-so uh, or in Christ, so-and-so, uh, however you close out your letters. But in Paul's day, when they wrote a letter, they identified themselves first. The, the, they identified who was sending the letter and who was receiving the letter in the very beginning of the letter. So he's following the standard letter format. But while he follows that format, nothing Paul does is without purpose. Even in this, what we would consider a standard greeting, there's nothing standard about it. He uses every opportunity to point to Christ and to teach and to encourage his readers. Now, as we talked last week, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ here. And we noted that last week, but note that he states that he is writing as a representative of Christ. And keep in mind that this is the one that this letter exalts. This is the one that this letter is identifying as the supreme being, as the God of all the universe, that Jesus is God in human form. He's not an image of God. He's not a, a, a reflection of God. He's not a, 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 a mere picture of God, but he is God dwelling among us. And he is writing this letter to them, and he is an apostle. Both of these things are true by the will of God. This is further confirmation of his authority as an apostle, but yet it is also another blow to the heresy that was being promoted within the town of Colossae, the city of Colossae, and was headed towards the church. You see, he was exalting Christ as the ultimate authority. Notice that he says that he is an apostle of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
He was exalting Christ as the ultimate authority. He was stating quite clearly that this authority was the will of God, unable to be thwarted by human ideas or the doctrines of man. He was promoting the supremacy, the preeminence, the authority of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul writes this, he says, To speak of supremacy is to speak of that which is above or over others. It reaches the level of the super. In our language, it refers to that which or who is greatest in power, in authority, or in rank. It is also used to describe that which or who is greatest in importance, significance, character, or achievement. In other words, the ultimate. In all these areas of consideration, Jesus ranks as the ultimate or supreme. Supreme in power. Supreme in rank. Supreme in glory. Supreme in authority. Supreme in importance, etc. As Paul addresses the Colossians, he reminds them of their position in Christ, as well as their relationship to the family of God. Notice that Paul identifies three aspects about the church in Colossae, about believers in general, that confirm he is writing to people who have been changed by the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in in Christ at Colossae. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Notice first that he calls them saints. He refers to them as saints. This term has been misused and abused over the centuries. Um, It's been used to elevate people to a state of piety. Uh, The Catholic Church especially um, uses that word to talk about many people, um, to call them saint, that they have achieved sainthood. But its real meaning, and how Paul uses it, and the New Testament writers use it here, is in reference to those who have, through the power of Christ, been saved and set apart in Christ Jesus. You see, in reality, being a saint has nothing to do with what we have done. Being a saint has nothing to do with our achievements. It has nothing to do with our accomplishments, however small or great they may be. It has nothing to do with anything that we have done. It has everything to do with what Christ has done. What Christ has accomplished in us. He calls them saints because Christ has saved them. Second, he references them as faithful brothers. Now, this may cause some confusion uh, to some, so let me clarify this statement. This word is a plural, as, as it is here, brothers. Um, it is a plural in the Greek as well, but it can refer to either brothers or sometimes brothers and sisters. In other words, the meaning of the word here is not necessarily brothers, but it's speaking in the terminology of siblings. I have a brother and a sister. They are my siblings. They are my blood relatives. This word was adopted and used by the New Testament writers to refer to those who were part of the family of God. So when he's speaking to the faithful brothers, he's speaking to the faithful siblings, you could say. To the faithful family of God in Colossae. So again, he's speaking to those who have been changed by the gospel. Paul was not writing just to men here, but he was writing to the church as a whole. Everything that's said in the book of Colossians is not just directed at the men, it is directed at the church. It is directed at the people, men, women, and children in the church. Everything in here is for us. Everything in here is uh, for us or applicable to us 
in certain ways. Obviously, there are certain things that he writes that we have to take into consideration were written strictly for the Colossian and Laodicean believers. As we see in chapter 2, this book was to be read, this letter was to be read to the Laodiceans, and there was a letter to the Laodiceans that was actually supposed to be read in Colossae as well. So there are certain things, certain aspects of the letter, but all of the truths that are contained within this are directly applicable in our lives. He's writing to the church, not just the men. So he says to the saints and faithful brothers, and lastly, he refers to them as being in Christ. This may seem like an insignificant phrase, but it's actually very important. It's a phrase that's used quite often in Scripture, and it has a deep meaning connected to it. To enter the presence of a holy God, okay, we've already talked about this, but we're going to go over it again. To enter the presence of a holy God, we must be hidden in the righteousness of Christ, right? To be in Christ means that God no longer sees our imperfections. He sees instead the righteousness of His one and only Son. Only in Christ is our sin debt canceled and our relationship with God restored and our eternity secured. Now remember in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 11 through 22, which we're going to read now, but Paul is, is speaking about this middle wall of separation that has separated for centuries, for millennia, the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul is describing to them how God has broken down that wall and created unity within the body of Christ. But listen to how he says it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So Gentiles and Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Pretty dire straits, isn't it? <laughs> that description doesn't give us much hope, does it? But he goes on, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He says you are saints. You are faithful family members of the family of God. And you are in Christ. Now Paul's greeting here is the same in all of his epistles. And the words he uses here are distinctly Christian. Again, as we said last week, uh, another um, shot across the bow of the Gnostics. He greets them with the mention of two of the greatest uh, the greatest gifts of God that we receive as believers. Notice what he says at the end of verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace. Two of the greatest gifts that we receive through Christ. What is grace? Well, grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's been said that grace, uh, the grace of God toward us is Him granting us that which we do not deserve. 
This is what has been done for us in Christ Jesus. He has granted to us that which we do not deserve. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, this is a, a fabulous verse, but it's also a famous verse that you know well, probably. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now we ask ourselves, what, is this, what does this verse really mean? How did Jesus become sin? You have to be careful with that statement, because a lot of people take that to the extent, and they take it way further than what Paul intended it when he wrote those words. Jesus became sin in one sense. And this is the sense. That when Christ was on the cross, God treated him. He poured out his wrath upon him as if he had committed every sin, past, present, and future, of everyone who would ever believe. When Jesus was upon the cross, God treated him as if all of us who have ever believed and would ever believe in Jesus Christ were on that cross. He poured out his wrath against sin upon his own son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And then it tells us, here's the grace of God that we might become the righteousness of God at the simultaneous moment, at the very moment that he is pouring out his wrath upon his son who is taking our place, he is pouring into us, crediting to our account the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. He grants to us that which we do not deserve. Now tell me that wouldn't fly in the face of the heresy that was being paraded at that moment. No, it's, it's wonderful that you have Jesus, but you need this too. And Paul says, absolutely not. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not about what you have done, ladies and gentlemen. It is about what Christ has done. It is about what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. But not only grace... He says, grace and peace to you. This brings about the peace that passes all that are just understanding. This wonderful news of the grace and the mercy of Christ that has been poured out upon us on the cross now brings us the peace that passes all understanding. We were at enmity with God. That must be understood. We were at enmity with God. We were enemies of Christ. We were completely opposed to Christ. We were completely opposed to God. But through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we now have been brought into reconciliation. We're now not only not at enmity with God, but we are a part of His family. Picture it this way. How many of you have ever been driving down the road in the summertime and you smell roadkill that's been baking in 90 degree weather for a couple of days. I think we've all smelled that. It's a bad smell, right? That's what you were before Christ. You were a dead, rotting corpse on the side of the road. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he made us alive. He made us alive. Not only did God take us from a dead, rotting corpse on the side of the road and make us alive, but he also placed us into his very family. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, Paul tells us this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. From dead, rotting corpses to children of the living God. That ought to get us excited. That ought to make us so overjoyed and so 
deeply thankful to Christ that our only response is, as Paul says in Romans 12, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to him. It is the least that we can do in light of what he has done for us, in light of what he has wrought in us as believers, the least that we can do, the very least that we can do is give him all that we are and all that we have. Not only does Paul give us a greeting here to the believers, and even within that give fights and, and words to this um, heresy that was being spread, but then we move into verses 3 through 8, and we see his thankfulness for them. Paul follows again the traditional letter format of his day by including a section on thanksgiving. He conveys his gratitude for the recipients of the letter. But he takes this custom and he uses it again in a distinctly Christian way. He thanks God and he's thankful for these people, but why is he thankful? What is he thankful for? Well, he's thankful to God for the work of the gospel in the Colossian church. He thanks God that the gospel has been taken to where they are and for the impact that it has had in their lives. Notice firstly that he is thankful, he is grateful for the reach of the gospel itself. Look at verses 5 through 8. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven... Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it, has, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You see, something that Paul understood very, very clearly is that for people to be changed by the gospel, they have to hear the gospel. Imagine that. <laughs> for people to be changed by the gospel, they must hear and understand the gospel. This is why it's so important that we represent Christ and the good news of the gospel in every aspect of our lives. Here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. Here's, here, here's the, the big news for this morning. Christians should be different. Christians should be different. I, I see it all the time. People are trying to make Christianity palatable for the people by making them think that we're no different than they are. But the fact of the matter is, we are different. We are different. We are to be different. We are to act different. We are to talk different, walk different, dress different. We are different. Think about this. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Take a little side note here. Again, a passage that you probably know well. I'm going to start reading in verse 21 and read through verse 23. But now the righteousness of God, in chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now think about that for a moment. What's Paul saying? He's saying that before Christ, before the gospel has taken hold in your life, there is no distinction. There is no difference, some of your translations may say. 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That tells us two things. It tells us, number one, that everyone is a sinner apart from Christ. We already talked about that this morning. But what does it also tell us by implication? If before the gospel there is no difference, then after the gospel has taken hold, there must be a difference. Ladies and gentlemen, an encounter with the living God, an encounter with the living Christ through the gospel changes you. It changes every aspect of your being. It even changes your very nature. So ladies and gentlemen, my challenge to you, one challenge to you this morning is this. Before Christ, there was no difference. You were as the world was. You were as the sons of disobedience are. You were a sinner. You were bound for hell. But if the gospel has taken hold in your life this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then there better be a difference between you and the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate. We are to be in this world. We can't minister to them. We can't preach the gospel to them if we are not in them. But we must not be of them. Before Christ, there was no difference. After Christ, there better be a difference. Is there a difference in you this morning? As Paul thanks God for the Colossians, he is thankful that the gospel has been taken to them and that they have heard it and they have received it and it has changed their lives. He also thanks God for the effectiveness of the gospel. You see, many may hear the truth, but it doesn't always take root and bear fruit, does it? And Paul thanks God that the gospel is indeed bearing fruit and increasing. This reminds us of the parable of the sower uh, that, that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 and Mark 4. You remember the sower goes out to spread some seed. Some of it falls on rocky ground. Some of it falls on thorny ground. Some of it falls on shallow ground. And some of it falls on good ground. And it's the, the, the seed that falls upon good soil that takes root and goes deep and drinks water and grows and bears fruit. The others are choked out or die away. Because this is encouraging for us too. When we understand that, that the response to the gospel doesn't depend upon us. I'm not called to create a response in you with the gospel. You know what I'm called to do? Preach the gospel. I'm just called to say it. I'm just called to speak it. I'm just called to live it. I'm just called to preach it just like every single one of you. The results of the, of the gospel do, do not depend upon me. They do not depend upon you. They depend upon God and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of that person. Your job is not to make sure that they respond to the gospel. Your job is to give them the gospel. That takes all the pressure off of us. I don't have to worry about the results. I pray for the results. I want the results. But my job as a believer first and as a pastor second, my job is simply to preach the gospel, to give the good news. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings about the bearing of fruit of that gospel. When we think about the sovereignty of God in salvation, it brings us tremendous peace. It, it brings us tremendous sanity even. <laughs> because I don't have to worry about the results. I simply have to do what Christ has commanded me to do. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Are we truly thankful for the spread and the impact of the gospel? Is there any part of us that rejoices in knowing that the gospel is bearing fruit? Or does it just seem ordinary to us? 
You see, if we truly understand the necessity of the gospel, then we should be overwhelmed with thanks when we hear that the gospel is changing lives. Do you rejoice when a weary and lost sinner comes to Christ? Or is it just another day for you? We have, especially here in America, we have lost the gravity of the gospel. We have lost the importance of the gospel. You see, we think here in America, especially, as I've said, we tend to think, our, our mindset tends to be that the gospel is just something that happened to us one day in history and we got saved and the gospel is no more important to us. But that's just not true. That is heresy. That is completely the furthest away from what the true gospel is. The gospel is something that we should be preaching to ourselves even every single moment of every single day. We should be thanking God that he reached out into eternity and has snatched us from the, the, the pit of hell and has, by his sovereign will, placed us into his family. We should be thanking him that he has washed us, that he has cleansed us from our sin, that he has brought about repentance and faith in our lives, and that he counts us as his child. Every single, if you can go one day, if you can go one hour of one day and not speak a word of thanks to Christ for what he has done in you, then the gospel doesn't mean to you what it means to me. The gospel is not something that happened to us. It is the very essence of why we are what we are and why we do what we do. The gospel must take center stage in everything that we do, in every event that we plan, in every conversation that we have, in, in every moment that we have. We should be contemplating in our own minds and hearts, how can I turn this towards the good news of Jesus Christ. So how you doing? Because <laughs> I struggle with this too. Because I live here too. It's easy for me to get complacent sometimes, even as a pastor. What does the gospel mean to you? And Paul was also in great thankfulness for the results of the gospel. In verses 3 through the first part of verse 5, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. In verse 6, Paul mentions that the gospel is bearing fruit. And in verses 3 through 5, he describes some of that fruit. Do you notice three words there that are quite common in Scripture? Faith, love, and hope. The grouping of these three virtues is frequent throughout the New Testament as a common summary of the impact of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 13, in Romans 5, 1-5, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-3, in 5, 8, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, in Hebrews 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 10-12. through 12. Constantly, over and over, these are given as evidences or as uh, responses or as uh, effects of the gospel. He's thankful for the faith of the Colossians. The act of placing our trust and our confidence in something or someone. In regards to salvation, we know that there is only one source of saving faith, and that is the person, Jesus Christ. And Paul thanks God that the Colossians have placed their faith in Him. We're often tempted to trust in other things apart from Christ in our lives. The world today tries to trust in its own morality or in a religion or creed or ideas of fairness. <laughs> but those who are truly in Christ are those who have confidence and faith in Him alone. By grace, through faith, you have been saved. 
He talks about the love of the Colossians in verse 4. The Scriptures are clear that those who are in Christ are people of love. What did Jesus say to His disciples? He said, they will know that you belong to Me by what? By your love for one another. And John even goes on in 1 John to tell us that it is only because He has loved us first that we have the ability to love, the propensity to love a Christian love. The Colossians have shown their position in Christ through their love for one another. As those who are in Christ this morning, the reality of the gospel should be evident through the way that we love one another, through the way that we treat one another. And then finally, the hope of the Colossians. The Colossians have a sure and a certain expectation of what awaits them in eternity. And it's their steadfast confidence in that future reality that sustains their faith and their love. You've heard the rapture referred to as our blessed hope. The understanding of the rapture of the church is our blessed hope. It is, it is not hope in the way that we use the word hope today. And we tend to use the word hope as in, I, well, I kind of hope this happens. I hope I get that promotion at work, or I hope I get that raise at work, or, you know, I hope that we have sausage gravy and biscuits for breakfast this morning. But that hope is, is based on not true knowledge, is it? Because we don't know that those things are going to happen. That's not the way that the Bible uses hope. When, it talks, when Paul talks about hope here, he's talking about a confident assurance almost as if it has already happened. They know that they know that they know that their eternity is secure in Christ Jesus, and that brings them hope. That brings them assurance in their eternity. As we look at the volatility of the world around us and the uncertainty of even our own situations, uh, it can be easy to despair, can't it? We can easily slip into that. But as Christians, we must remember that we have something that remains even when everything else falls apart. We have a hope laid up for us in heaven, and we're called to be people who live in hope. Again, this morning, if you're in here, and the gospel has never taken hold of you, then what are you waiting for? <laughs> we used to say there's nothing but air and opportunity, and now it's nothing but opportunity. Don't wait another moment. If you feel the call of the Holy Spirit upon your life, give your heart to Him this morning. Respond to the good news of the gospel in faith and repentance. And allow the blood of Christ to wash you clean from your sin and place you into the family of God. Believer, if you're in here this morning, then my prayer for you is this, that that same gospel that can bring new life to the unbeliever would not lose its effect on you as a follower of Christ, but that it would continue to permeate every aspect of your lives. And that you would allow it to do so. That you would seek it with all your heart. That you would preach the gospel to yourself daily. As well as preaching it to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you have given us. For your many, many blessings. We thank you as we think upon these words of Paul as he expresses his thankfulness for the Colossian believers, he expresses his thankfulness for the gospel. The true gospel. Not the heresy that was being spread by the Gnostics, but the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The true good news. He even told the Galatian churches that they were believing. He was so amazed that they were straying so soon and going after another gospel. And he said, it's not really another gospel because it's not good news because it's Jesus plus something else he says the truth is 
Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And God, we are so thankful for what Christ has done. God, if there's someone in here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day, that now would be the time of their salvation. And for those of us who do know you, that we would seek each and every day to live, breathe, talk, and act, and preach the gospel to ourselves and to everyone we come in contact with. That it would permeate every aspect of our lives and that it would create an attitude of thankfulness to you in our hearts. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you will as we sing, I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to Thee. I need Thee every hour. Stay Thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when Thou art nigh. I need Thee, oh, I need Thee. I need thee, oh bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. You may be seated.